in, <laughs> in this uh, January retreat each year with its particular focus on the relationship between early Buddhist teachings and contemporary mindfulness-based approaches. We have some sense of a curriculum that we like to try to share and cover uh, of what we, kind of based on our sense of this, feel is most likely to be helpful to folk uh, working as mindfulness teachers or psychotherapists or uh, psychologists or education, educators, um, social workers. So there are the kind of key themes that we return to. And one of these is the theme of insight. And I'd like just to offer some reflections on this theme this evening. Um, and it's in that list, really, because the development, it's the development of insight and understanding that is really the central journey of this practice and this path. You know. it's the, the Buddha is, is clear that it's through seeing and understanding our experience more fully and investigating it in the light of the teachings of awakening that the heart gradually unbinds and releases itself uh, from its constrictions, from its contractions, from its, its boundedness. Yeah. And the Pali word for, for insight is this word panya, which nya always means a kind of knowing, and pa means thoroughly, or that's one of its meanings, so thoroughly knowing. Thoroughly knowing in a way that makes a difference. Yeah. And a way that isn't just a conceptual knowing. It's a, it's a, a knowing that uh, we can embody, that we can live. And my guess is, and uh, you know, part of the reason for choosing this theme this evening and trying to, trying to give some kind of overview of it is, is just the experience of the groups that has been so touching and, and, and moving and inspiring and just seeing how this development of mindful awareness seems to bring a kind of deeper knowing of ourselves in a way that can release, that can unbind, that can be really so helpful. And the, the kind of difference that it makes, this knowing, is in the, certainly in this context, this, this way of understanding insight, is in terms of the lessening, the decreasing of dukkha. So I, I can't, couldn't quite remember if we've actually kind of named that Pali term. We've talked about it a lot, but dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, which means often translated as suffering, though it's a very wide-spectrum word. So it's not, you know, suffering would be perhaps a portion of the spectrum, but unsatisfactoriness would be one way of translating it. So that it goes from, you know, the most intense anguish to just the most subtle sense of incompleteness. Things not being quite how I'd like them to be, yeah? So a spectrum word. And insight, we could say insight is any understanding or way of seeing that reduces dukkha. Yeah? Because what it does is it reduces that which gives rise to dukkha. And there is this basic equation that we've referred to a few times in the Buddha's teachings that the, the origin of dukkha is in tanha, or craving, or thirst. Jaya spoke about this in her, her, her talk on Vedana. That kind of wanting things to be different from how they are. Wanting 
the pleasant to intensify or prolong, wanting the unpleasant to disappear. Yeah? Do, do we sense, can you sense the kind of, it's the second noble truth, isn't it? This basic kind of algorithm that is, I think of as like a piece of coding that runs through the whole Dharma. The whole Dharma is really based on that sense that the dukkha, the origin of dukkha is this kind of uh, uh, wanting things to be different. Thirst gives that kind of sense of it as a kind of embodied quality. So it gets translated as craving. In contemporary mindfulness-based approaches, it gets translated as reactivity often. Yeah? And, and Jaya spoke about that. And so we could have this sense that what any, the insight in this context is any seeing or understanding in any way that reduces this kind of equation. Does that make sense? Reduces the reactivity, reduces the craving, and therefore reduces the dukkha. Whether that's at some you know, relatively, we could say, mundane insight that we've been playing with here that noticing if I smile, oh, kind of the world feels a bit brighter suddenly, you know, that it has an effect on mood. There's an insight there, right? You know, or noticing that an act of kindness, some of you have kind of experienced, have spoken in the groups about doing something kind or experiencing something kind from others and just how that can be such an uplift you know, in a moment. Oh, an insight there. Right through to the most profound and deeply liberating insights about selflessness, impermanence, and and, uh, the kind of inherent insubstantiality of things. So this is a kind of, uh, a way of understanding insight right across the spectrum. And across, uh, across the kind of spectrum of of, uh, we could say, in a certain way, depth, but also across the spectrum of personal and universal. So we could kind of distinguish these different dimensions of of insight. Many of you have reported personal insights in the groups, you know. Recognitions, seeings of personal patterns or personal beliefs or shapes or stories that you've been telling about yourself and you hadn't really realized. Yeah? Personal habits that we uh, get into and that can so easily kind of shape and ingrain themselves and become transferred into multiple relationships in our lives. And these are what the Buddha calls sankharas. Used this word before, such a key word in the Buddha's presentation of what constitutes human experience and also what gives rise to suffering. This word, as I mentioned in the, the talk the other day, sankharas means kind of formations or activations or drives or patternings. Uh, constructions. And this is what we encounter, isn't it? In the practice. You know, we encounter our habits and patterns. And and we can sense how uh, these have been shaped by our experience. Our experience, you know, actually from the womb onwards and maybe before as as the particular sensitivities of body and heart come into contact with a matrix of conditions that have the full range of vedana in them don't they you know And that actually it's this kind of reaction to Vedana is the kind of shaping factor from this way of looking in what sculpts our habits and formations and patterns and 
beliefs about ourselves, the stories we identify with. Does this make sense? Can we feel feel this? That that this is, you know, the Buddha here is identifying the very kind of, the very factors that shape self and selfing. And that sense that these habits and patterns and character strategies and structures that we have are, in that sense, intrinsically relational, aren't they? That they arise in relation to all that surrounds us, you know, particularly the other human beings with whom we interact. You know. And we can see, you know, that this shaping is, is both uh, inevitable and something that, again, several of the groups that we've had this kind of reflection on, the intelligence that lay behind those strategies when they originally may have developed and, and arisen. You know, that that they, they made sense at that time. You know, they were intelligent responses, appropriate responses, to, to difficult or delightful conditions. Yeah? And we can see that what ends up happening is we kind of keep doing them. They become part of our repertoire, don't they? And get more ingrained and may outlive, and often do outlive their appropriateness and their usefulness. And you know, the conditions on retreat really are conducive to these arising, aren't they? You know, because we're giving such a lot of attention to the body, which is an integral part of, of how these structures and patterns imprint themselves, isn't it? The Buddha identified sankharas of kind of three kinds. He said body, chitta, heart, mind, and speech. Uh, which was referring, by which he's referring to thoughts, really. You know, so that sense of thoughts as a kind of internal speech. Um, and we, he said, well, there are these three kinds of sankharas. We could say, actually, well, these are just three dimensions of sankhara: the, the bodily dimension, the, the dimension in terms of perception and feeling, and, the dimen- and, and beliefs and stories, and the dimension in terms of thoughts, more kind of automatic thoughts or thinking patterns. And just giving so much attention to the body, haven't we all been kind of discovering patterns of embodiment, right? You know, and, and just this sustained listening to the body and resourcing of the body, grounding of the body, enabling the body to begin to kind of unfreeze from some of its contractions and come more fully into awareness. Well, ah, often what gets uncovered are the aches or the pains or the ways I've been, one person would say, I've been holding my shoulders up for years and suddenly realized that might be optional, you know? And, you know, this gets revealed, doesn't it? We sense how our bodies... Uh, and our heart minds uh, are also very sensitive to safety and the lack of safety, perceptions of safety and the lack of it. I mean, isn't that, isn't that part of the treasure of this place and this kind of uh, context, that there is a greater degree of relative safety than most of us experience day by day. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on cultivating that through the ethos, the ethics, the ways in which people over the decades have practiced here, cultivated here. And I just want to acknowledge that I, uh, that, that these sankharas that we uh, experience, and many of you have been noticing, are that, that 
they're not just personal. They're also social and cultural. And that we can, you know, many people uh, experience uh, a sense of unsafety in the body, in the heart-mind, as a result of forms of structural oppression and prejudice and violence in our culture against uh, groups and people because of their race and ethnicity, their gender, their sexual orientation. And, and I was very grateful for a conversation this week that really highlighted for me an omission in the talk I gave about body in not really acknowledging that. Not really acknowledging that uh, and the unsafety that many people experience uh, as a result of, of these structural social sankharas. So I, I really apologize for not uh, naming that clearly in in, in the talk the other day and um, you know trauma takes many forms doesn't it trauma takes many forms and and um, uh, there are groups in our society and there are many many people in our society who are more exposed to it than others and this needs acknowledging and it needs acknowledging uh, um, for us as mindfulness teachers and psychotherapists. I've been very much appreciating David Trelevin's book, um, Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness, um, which if you're a mindfulness teacher, I strongly recommend to you. And he really makes a very important connection between trauma and social injustice and structural forms of violence and oppression. So really just to kind of acknowledge yeah, the cultural dimensions um, of uh, sankharas, you know, that the, the ways in which we, we interject patterns um, from our surrounding societies, the, the inner critic or the inner tyrant being one of them. Yeah, it's a social sankara, sankara isn't it? It's a, it's a personal pattern that, that actually manifests at the personal but actually comes from the society as much as anything and you know beginning to bring awareness to that how helpful it is how helpful it is to 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 develop more insight as a teacher and as a therapist around patterns of um, self-criticism because that's what so many people are bringing into our classes uh, and into our therapy rooms so these, um, these patterns of uh, shaping of body, uh, they reflect and you know, they have a heart aspect, an aspect that's to do with perception, to do with belief, to do with you know, personality tendencies, unconscious biases and assumptions. The domain that in cognitive psychology is called you know, core beliefs that we can have about ourselves. And the stories that we've come to believe about ourselves, about our life, about our journeys, about our difficulties, our triumphs, our struggles, the ways in which we've tried to make sense of past events and experiences, the self-images that we can identify with, that, that you know, there's, there's something wrong with me, or there's a sense of inadequacy or unlovability. You know, that those beliefs that, that often come out as I always dot, 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 or I'll never dot, dot, dot. And we can see how these kind of shape these speech patterns in the mind, speech patterns of thought, the, the automatic thoughts, the negative automatic thoughts, as they're called in CBT, that... Uh, we can catch, and that can be a sign, a thread for tracing into some of these patterns of the heart. And you know, there is a way in which the silence of retreat, where we're not interacting in the ordinary way, 
it gives lots of scope for these patterns to show themselves, doesn't it? In projections and stories and you know, the, the kind of dramas that we can create in our minds, which you know, in a couple of days' time, you're going to have a chance to see whether they're true or not. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and it's really, you know, in a certain way, it's shocking, isn't it? What our minds can do. And these, these sankharas that kind of create such, you know, uh, charged dramas, you know, such charged stories. And of course, there's nothing wrong with stories. We need stories. These are how we make meaning, you know, both at a personal level, a you know, family level, a community level, a collective level, an archetypal level, you know. The question is, how do we hold the stories? How do we, how do we relate to them? Do we consciously tell them or do they tell us which they so easily do don't they you know some stories truly are healing and honoring and reclaiming and that we can feel that to kind of tell that story brings a certain release a, a diminishing of of a of a a particular flavor of dukkha that is from things not having been seen and not having been honored. You know. So it's really not you know, that, that somehow stories are to be got rid of. That, that would be violence. You know. But just to reflect, how am I holding the stories that I tell? You know. You know so often on retreat, we can, we can have these insights, oh, that's who I've taken myself to be. Wow, you know? I've taken myself to be that person who dot, dot, dot. And we see it's a bit like we've been kind of wearing these old clothes. We've been kind of dutifully putting them on each day, even though we've grown out of them, you know? We keep putting them on, forcing our feet into old shoes that actually may have been, you know, created when we were six or, you know, 16 and that no longer fit now. And just that reflection that, you know, it's always possible to tell a different story. No story can ever be the whole truth of a situation, an experience, let alone a lifetime. The truth is always bigger and kind of infinitely more complex than any story or self-image with which we can identify. Do, do we sense that? Do we sense that this is, you know, part of the liberation of this practice is, is a fr- to develop a freedom with stories. We won't have a freedom necessarily from stories in the sense that, you know, we need the stories to live. We need, you know, we make, we're story-creating beings, aren't we? You know, but a freedom with them so that we develop the capacity to pick up the ones that are helpful and to put down the ones that are not. You know? and, and it's insight that enables that. It's insight of the way in which we have kind of merged and identified. I think it's psychoanalysis calls it cathecting, doesn't it? Where we've, we've merged with something and not realized that we were defining ourselves in that way, that we were kind of putting on those clothes so dutifully every day and feeling our kind of inadequacy and unlovability almost as a duty, you know? And just that freedom to sense that we, we may be able to choose, you know, we may be able to choose to know how mindfulness can dissolve the identification, dissolve the solidity. We see the story as a mirage rather than as a life sentence. You know. and, and in working with Sankaras, it's so helpful, as we've been saying, to, to find the anchors and the grounds that are outside the patterns. You know, where in the body is not caught up in the story or the thought storm? You know, where in the body is not in pain? Soles of the feet, sit bones, tail bones, hands, 
touch of the lips, the breath, the silence, the metaphrases, the remembering of that loving and caring person who looked after us, or that person who inspires us. To have these grounds that are outside our patterns. This is so, so helpful, isn't it? <laughs> you know? Because there can be a there can be this kind of principle in, in contemporary mindfulness-based approaches that, that nobly says, turn towards the difficult. In fact, go to where the sensa- the uncomfortable sensations are strongest. Yeah. And yes. There is a wisdom in learning to do that. And it's so easy to get overwhelmed. It's so easy to keep trying to turn towards the difficult and just get exhausted by the pain or the, the kind of relentless activation of it. You know. My sense is that it's often more helpful to find you know, where is, is not in difficulty. And really to make a home there, to make much of that, to really settle into the places of okayness in our lives. And then we can relate to the patterns from them. Does that make sense? Rather than trying to relate from the patterns to those patterns, you know, where we will probably be bringing a lot of the aversion that is feeding the pattern and, and keeping it pumped up. You know. And, and you know, the, 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 the understandings from the literature about trauma are very helpful here. You know. as, as Babette Rothschild says, if you're learning to drive, it's really helpful to get used to using the brake before you experiment with the accelerator, you know? And do we know where the brakes are in our experience? You know, those places that we can take the attention to that steady, that calm, that resource, you know? And from which we can then just touch into the accelerator, which is often, as many of you have commented, are kind of on the soft front line of the body where we feel things, we're impacted, where the kind of the heat element shows up, you know, in its activating ways for, for good or for suffering, you know. And just to, to develop that sense of capacity that I loved Kinchino's phrase of shuttle diplomacy, you know, to, to bring... The, the, the energy and the experience of resource into conversation with the edges of difficulty. Yeah? And, and just touching in, touching in and then coming back, touching in, coming back. Babette Rothschild also says, you know, if you want to let pressure out of a pressure cooker, don't pull the lid off in one go. She says, let it out a little at a time. Yeah? So just a little of the grief or the fear or the anger or the anxiety and then oh back to the break or back to the the ground back to the earth element you know that sense that that in this practice and and the kind of developing neuroscience of this as well as the ancient wisdom of it that that to to touch into the difficult to let the wave, wave through, and then to come back to the place of resource. This is helpful. This is helpful. This helps our systems gradually re-regulate and find their, their balance again. Does, does this make sense? Does this make sense you know, for us each to experiment with this? But uh, my sense is that the next generation of MBI manuals may need to reflect more of our learnings about trauma than, than, than perhaps some of the current ones do. Some of the current ones do. You know. We see that what's going on there, and isn't it amazing that the Buddha saw this so clearly 2,500 and whatever years ago, you know, that, that, that when... The, when there's less reactivity because there's a sense of resource, what happens is that the, you know, the, the reactivity goes down 
And the Vedana goes down as well. That sense that when I'm really hating it, I'm pumping up the unpleasantness of it. You know? When I bring resource to it, the Vedana may come into a more manageable zone. Maybe less overwhelming. Gradually, gradually, one at a time. Yeah? And that, that the dukkha, the dukkha also, you know, can diminish then too. And, and some of you have really been seeing this, really seeing this experientially, you know, over these days. I'm going to, I don't want to put it in the past tense. It makes it sound, we've got plenty of time left. Some of you are seeing this, are seeing this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this, this uh, whole domain of, of personal insight, personal patterning, ways of working with these sankharas. And the personal, what we just hear in that, that sense of the dukkha and the vedna and the tanha, how the personal reflects the universal. You know, part of perhaps the, the, the way in which the Dharma helps is by showing us the way things work. You know, or at least giving us some hypotheses to test about the way things work. You know, the hypothesis that craving and reactivity amplifies dukkha, for instance. You know. So you know, we can understand the, this word dharma as kind of natural law. You know, that pointing out the, the highlighting the ways in which things things work. And in that sense, the Dharma is full of universal insights, you know, insights that we can test against our own experience and, and see, you know, what well, is it the case? Is it the case that hatred never ceases by hatred, but by non-hatred alone is healed, you know? Is that the case? Well, yes, maybe this is what we see when we look at our lives or... Watch the news, you know. And in terms of liberation, in terms of the, the diminishing of dukkha, there are these three particular insights that the Buddha highlights because they are so powerful in challenging some of the misunderstandings that give rise to craving and clinging and reactivity. And these are the, the insights into impermanence, into unsatisfactoriness and into not self. Yeah. They, they, they challenge our tendencies to see things in terms of being permanent, fixed and solid or able to satisfy or as being moi, to again quote Miss Piggy as we've done a few times. Yeah. And you know, we, the thing with insights is that, you know, we, we, there are levels of insight. Akinchana mentioned this last night. You know, the Buddha really acknowledged that the first level of insight is often just to hear the Dharma taught. And something in us perks up and thinks, hmm, that's interesting, you know. And this is what the Buddha called the insight that comes from hearing. And then there's the insight that then develops that through reflection and thinking about and maybe reading about or listening to talks about or talking with people about, which is a gradual kind of metabolizing of the insight to a deeper level. And then, as Akinshino said, the, the kind of deepest levels of insight are through practice. It's through really practicing and engaging ways of looking uh, that are insightful, that we kind of realize for ourselves these truths. And, you know, mindfulness and metta practice really support this metabolizing of insight. You know, we, we have this sense through slowing down, through being more embodied, through bringing kindness, through questioning, through asking what's happening now, through investigating the, the four different satipatthanas, which really pinpoint uh, places to notice these three truths of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not so things do begin to unbind. There is a sense of insights coming as fruits. 
But the Buddha also said, you know, we have such a strong and tenacious grip on not seeing things the way they are. He described this path, as many of you will know, as swimming upstream, you know, in terms of our habits and our cultural conditionings. So the Buddha also recommended and spoke about practicing insights. Choosing ways, cultivating ways of looking that are freeing. Can, can we sense that? The difference between, we often have our model, our kind of internal model of insight as, as something that pops up as a fruit, as a result of practice. And that is often what happens. And the Buddha said, you can wear insights like pairs of spectacles and practice viewing your experience in that way, which will encourage that way of looking and those understandings gradually to be kind of metabolized. And so this you know, first of these universal insights into impermanence, you know, the, 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 the tradition says again and again is really a kind of uh, essential insight It's a truly gateway insight to all the kind of stages and dimensions of awakening. Really to consciously direct our attention to noticing change and impermanence and letting that really kind of sink in, you know. Uh, Because we have so much investment in not seeing it or we know it at one level up here. Nobody would disagree with it, right? You know, but how much do I really know it down here? And so, you know, the end of a day, just to reflect, where is the mood you woke up with? Where are the thoughts that seem so preoccupying in, at breakfast, you know? Where are yesterday's preoccupations? Where is the body sensations that you thought would never change? It's it's good to notice how things change, isn't it? Over a retreat, really important. Over a day, over a single sitting or walking period. The suttas report many of the early arahants awakening from the realization that whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And just to see you know, that in the weather patterns, external and internal. You know, to see that in our, in our personal and family lives, in our body and our health, in our cycles of... Uh, you know, birth, aging, death, and new birth that shape our lives. And to notice the heart's response to this. You know, when, when things are unpleasant, then impermanence comes as good news, doesn't it? <laughs> you know? Uh, and there can be, you know, maybe you can sense into this, there's this kind of l- relief and a lightening and unburdening as we see, oh yeah, this too will pass. This too will pass. You know? And of course, there's the poignancy and the sorrow that comes as we recognize, you know, the, the brevity of what we love. And those we love, the, the transients, the, that uh, phrase from Naomi Shihab Nye's poem before, you know, kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow until you see the size of the cloth. And then only kindness makes sense anymore. And so important to uh, allow ourselves to, as we contemplate impermanence, to feel the poignancy of it. To have that sense of resource, to have that sense of ground that enables us really 
to metabolize at a heart level the truth of this insight. So important that we resource around the understanding of impermanence. Some of the maps of awakening talk about stages of fear and kind of disgust that we need to go through as we really come to terms with impermanence. My sense is actually that tends to happen only when the heart is under-resourced with joy or gratitude or appreciation or kindness or compassion or samadhi. So it feels very important when contemplating this insight, I think, to, to, to keep resourcing oneself, you know, to keep resourcing oneself. To, you know, it's often at times of loss that a gratitude journal is most helpful. You know. And just reflecting on this truth in its many dimensions, you know, can come to inform our present moment seeing, you know, our present moment recognition that, oh, this is unpleasant and I know it will pass. You know, or this is pleasant and I know it will pass. One of our colleagues, Martine Batchelor, has this phrase that she, she recommends around unpleasant, difficult experience. She says, Hmm, I wonder how long this will last. You know? It's a very, you might try that. It's a very good one with unpleasant experience. Hmm, I wonder how long this will last. You know? Just highlights the changing nature. Highlights the changing nature. And, you know, directing our gaze through this lens of impermanence to body sensations, pleasant and unpleasant to all of the sense doors, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, and mind. You know, even the, the wandering mind, the fickle mind, can actually be a teacher there. It kind of highlights impermanence, doesn't it? You know? Rather than being a problem, it can, oh, thank you for the teaching. How difficult it can be to sustain intention. You know? Everything's changing. I find I sometimes use the, the word, oh, changing, changing, you know. To notice walking meditation as an experience of constant change, you know. Letting go of the perception of, you know, one step and another step, just like we can let go of the perception in-breath and out-breath, and just experience process and change. And to let this really kind of imprint itself the changing dance of Vedana, moment by moment, letting it, that imprint itself. You know. Awareness itself, you know, changing, changing. We can you know, see that, that this is a truth that we need to, to see and keep orienting to many times. And the reason why it's seen as this portal into greater freedom is that to to truly metabolize the changing nature of things is to see that clinging and fixation just don't make sense anymore. It's like holding sand, you know. That the Buddha put it very pithily in a, in a statement in the middle-length discourses. He said, it's a statement that goes kind of from naught to 100 quite fast. Seeing impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. When it doesn't cling, it isn't agitated. When it isn't agitated, it naturally attains Nibbana. Can we sense that? You know, the agitation which is the reactivity to, to Vedana, the, the pushing and the pulling. You know. And it is this understanding of impermanence that informs the second of these, these truths, these insights, uh, that of Dukkha, which in this context and it, 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 
we can translate as, as the inability to satisfy. That sense that things are fleeting and impermanent. So I can't rely on them as a lasting source of satisfaction. And, you know, we, we, we get to see this, don't we, on retreat? We get to see, you know, the, the, how the mind can project onto something, hoping that it's going to give me the hit, you know? And then we discover it's fleeting. I, I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge in November, and uh, much of the time it was really lovely, and some of the time it was difficult, you know? And I noticed that the mind was starting to develop a fantasy about the cup of coffee that I would have on the journey home. Because <laughs> I was, you know, I wasn't drinking coffee that month. And, and just noticing how much weight it was putting on this. That's going to be the moment. It's going to be great, you know. <laughs> cup of coffee, can't wait for it, you know. And, you know, I, I had some presence of mind to see what was going on. And then I couldn't help laughing when I actually had the cup of coffee because it was just so, you know, it was, it was lovely, but it was such a fleeting experience. And the mind had put so much weight on it as being this kind of, oh, that'll be, I'm so looking forward to that. You know? And it's not, you know, this is not about... Uh, well, it reminds me, you know, George Bernard Shaw, the playwright, who said the two disappointments in life, not getting what you want and getting it, you know. And, and you know, that's, that's not the kind of, it's not intended to be Eeyore's philosophy, you know, Winnie the Pooh's Eeyore, you know, just kind of pessimistic. It's not a philosophy of pessimism. It's actually just seeing how we impoverish the present moment by projecting potential satisfaction onto some future event, you know. Just notice how one can do it with the end of a retreat, you know, at the difficult moments, how the mind kind of looks out and creates this mirage, doesn't it, (laughs) you know. And actually when we get there we find, well, it's fine and it's fleeting, it passes. And actually that's a way of re- claiming the preciousness and the nourishment and the beauty and the opportunity of the present. This is this kind of, I could, but I don't need to gesture. I could spend my time thinking about the cup of coffee or whatever it is that's on your radar. I could, but I don't need to. It's actually more dukkha to, to kind of project and, uh, you know, put all the, you know, impoverish the present and, and put all the faith in a mirage. It's, it's an effort, isn't it? It's a dukkha. Any time we're projecting out of the present, you can feel, you know, when we get sensitive on retreat, we can feel there's a kind of weight in that or a, a, a hemorrhaging of energy, you know. In that. And actually just to reclaim, I could do all that, I could do that trip, I could, somebody said today, you know, I could get annoyed about it, but actually I don't need to, you know. MBSR, MBCT calls it the wisdom of allowing and letting be, doesn't it? You know, allowing and letting things be, you know. And it's from these two dimensions of, or it's from you know, the, the, the understanding of things as not-self uh, actually turns out not to be separate from the insights into impermanence and to the, uh, you know, the, the radical impermanence and instability and unsatisfactoriness, the, that sense that things can't satisfy. You know, the Buddha presents self... He, he, you know, there's, there's recognition that, that because if things and experiences are so radically impermanent, unstable, unsatisfactory, they can't be a solid, permanent, lasting, and satisfiable self. And this is something, again, that's 
being put here as a hypothesis. You know, can we test out this experience of self? So, you know, and see, what is it? How does it work? How does it work, this experience of self? You know? And so if we take an experience, you know, like uh, an unpleasant body sensation or mood in a sitting, we can see that in reaction to that, a whole bunch of factors can co-arise. There can be the initial sense of unpleasant not wanting. So there's the unpleasant Vedana and there's a basic sense, I don't want this. And we can feel, as Jaya was describing, how that can just intensify a bit into I don't like it. And that actually the I don't like it and the mind kind of shrinking a bit in aversion will solidify the unpleasant. It'll make it more unpleasant. And how quickly the sense of self comes in that says, I can't do this. Do you notice that? (laughs) And, And that that feeds into a story that can easily say, oh, I can never do this. You know, I just can't do this thing. And the urge to, to, and that sense of there's something wrong with me. That sense of the, the kind of inadequate self somehow arising. I mean, uh, it may just be me to whom this happens. It's, I hope there's some, there's some recognition here, you know. Uh, to notice how what often happens with that as well is the urge to do something in reaction to, to it. Yeah? Whether that's I've got to get away, I've got to move, I've got to somehow get rid of it. I should have done that tango course that Akinchino was talking about <laughs> instead. You know, The sense of urgency. We can notice that with the, un, with the con- constriction, what happens to time? Haven't you noticed how time kind of expands and contracts on, on retreat, depending the mood we're in, you know? And when there's aversion, doesn't time often feel kind of, we can't get over, over it. I've got to do something quickly about this, you know. There's a kind of hurry up, my hurry up and ring the bell at the front, you know. Uh, <laughs> notice that the sense of other, because there's a sense of selfing, what co-arises with that is a sense of othering, isn't there? Where I become someone who can't do it compared with others who can, for instance. They're all looking peaceful and calm and I'm feeling, you know, horrible. You know? So self and other as two aspects of the same co-arising process. How the, the sense of friendliness and compassion gets squeezed out, doesn't it? Whether it's for self or for others when the mind is aversive. And there's this sense of just dukkha unsatisfactoriness. So we see that these factors all co-arise together, mutually strengthen together. And we can also notice that they co-diminish together. So we, you know, we get up and we go out for the walking period and there's a chipmunk, you know, and something is delighted in us, you know. And the mood changes. Or we get to the mindful movement and just the movement and stretching. And actually we just feel better in the body and something changes. You know? We start to see that selfing, that, that self is, is really best described as a verb, as a process that intensifies and diminishes together with a bunch of other factors that support it. They co-arise and co-diminish together. The self is a kind of felt center to our experience that's apparently substantial and that intensifies and diminishes, that grows more or less substantial according to how much craving and aversion are present in the moment. Does that make some sense? Can we feel that? 
Can we feel that selfing is something that intensifies and diminishes during the day? When there's a lot of wanting or not wanting, it intensifies. When there's a sense of peace or contentment or gratitude, it softens and opens out. You know? So we have a spectrum of selfing, like we have a spectrum of dukkha, like we have a spectrum of tanha. You know? And that even though you know, our patterns uh, can feel so ingrained, the familiar sense of a continuous, permanent selfhood is an illusion. The Buddha is suggesting that rather than belief in a self, our experience is better understood in terms of these patterns arising and passing. So the Buddha invites us in the Satipatthana Sutta to perceive body as body, Vedana as Vedana, Chitta, mental states, as mental states, you know, rather than as self. Rather than as self. So body, bodying, without a bodier, you know. <laughs> Thoughts, thinking, without a thinker. You know? Moods changing like the weather, without somebody who has to own them. Anger, angering, judgment, judging, worry, worrying. A way of looking just to try on and see how does that, how does that feel? How does that feel? A Kinchino's second question. You know, to sense maybe that when there's less identification with experience, that Experience, it's not an experience of dissociation or blankness, but a lightness, a lightness of being. You know, we, we sense as, as uh, an MBCT, you know, that sense of thoughts, moods, emotions as mental events that arise and pass without having to be gripped and identified with. The Buddha is not here saying that there is no self. There are times in the suttas when he speaks in terms of self, where it's skillful to think and relate in terms of self. You know, many dimensions of our lives where we need really to show up as a self, as a person, parenting, you know, creativity, sexuality, friendship, psychotherapy, you know. Need us to be able to show up as a self, you know. The Buddha, one thing the Buddha never said was not self, was our ethical responsibility. So there's an affirmation of self as a way of looking. And can we know and explore the freedom that comes from being able to practice seeing things as not self? The Buddha said to his son, you should practice seeing all phenomena as they really are with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. The habit of seeing in terms of selves is so ingrained, he's saying, that actually we need to wear the spectacles of not self to encourage that capacity to disidentify to not be so merged with things that are changing, that are unsatisfactory, that are not able to satisfy. And you know, this is a leads to the practice of not me, not mine. How is it as you sit here now, just to have the sense of the body is oh, not me, not mine, just body. Thoughts, not me. Not mine, just thoughts arising and passing. Moods and mental states, not me, not mine, just moods. Does it mean you're any less in contact with them? You know? Intentions, habits, not me, not mine, just patterns, what they are. Even the voice that's saying, not me, not mine, not me, not mine, you know? <laughs> Awareness itself, 
which is often where the kind of the sense of identification defaults to awareness itself. How is it to have a sense of awareness, not me, not mine, just knowing, just knowing? So, uh, tried to give some sense of overview of these aspects of insight that are so integral to the path and that are dedicated to, the, to, to really coming to see and understand for ourselves what turns the dial of dukkha towards greater intensity of difficulty and suffering and what turns it away from that, what helps to diminish difficulty and suffering, the, the reactivity, the craving that we add the second, third, fourth, and fifth arrows and darts, you know, that Jaya spoke about. Personal insights, universal insights. The importance of knowing, understanding, befriending, caring for, expressing our distinct personhood, you know. Not using these universal teachings to, to spiritually bypass or somehow to kind of blanch our color, our personhood, you know, our needs, our creative expression, our humanity. You know. And can we cultivate and really play with and explore and taste the freedom of ways of looking that see the impermanence and the impermanent nature of things, the inability of things and experience to give lasting satisfaction, and this, that freedom of seeing them as not me, not mine, just nature, just what they are. As, as we were in one of the groups reflecting today, the profoundest awakenings come from seeing, and these could perhaps be a dimension of ultimate insights, that the appearance of substantiality in things is dependent on the mind, on the way of looking in the present, and all the assumptions and beliefs and conceptions that are implicit in this and shaping this. This is the Buddha's teaching of, that can be so helpful to see the mirage-like nature of perception. Insight, creating a diminishing of dukkha, a diminishing of craving, an increase of space and spaciousness, and an increase also of our capacity for an unentangled care and love and compassion. We could say that insight ultimately is in the service of that sensitivity and responsiveness to life that Jaya is going to speak about tomorrow evening, you know. Uh, but we see that the, the wisdom of insight and the, the tenderness and responsiveness of compassion are in service of each other, are supportive of each other, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, you know, we need a very cool head and a very warm heart. And I, f- I find it also beautifully articulated in the, f- the famous quotation by Srinasagadatta, wisdom or insight sees that I am nothing, no thing. Love sees that I am everything. Between these two, the life of a wise being flows. So let's just take a moment or two together.
Hey, thanks for your attention and your patience. So let's uh, take some time for, for walking before our final sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.